Several weeks ago we talked about worship and that a great church is characterized by great worship. And uh, I made the statement to some effect uh, several weeks ago that the purpose of worship is for heaven to invade our earthly existence. That, that's what worship is all about because many times in our lives we get bogged down in our existence in this world and we forget that there is a greater reality. Worship is an occasion not only individually but corporately that we invite and we ask heaven to invade our earthly existence that it might reorientate us to what the real reality is. And many times we lose sight of what the real reality is in our life because we've looked at the earthly things and not the heavenly things. But I didn't come this morning to preach about worship. That was free. Uh, several weeks ago, I guess about six weeks ago, we started talking about characteristics of a great church. If God were to evaluate a church, what would the criteria be? And made a lot of sense to me to look to what he said in his word. And one of the things that Jesus said is he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. And by this will all men know that you are my followers, that you have love for one another. One of the characteristics of a great church is they love one another. Um, the second Sunday we talked about that I believe a great church, and I believe this according to God's Word, is, is a church that has a vision that is worldwide. That's not just about us, but because God wants to redeem the whole world, that we need to be a part of that. And so our vision needs to be worldwide. And I believe that's one of the things that God looks for in a great church is a worldwide vision. We talked about worship, the third of these sermons. I went to Africa somewhere in the midst of that. I don't remember exactly where, but... Um, we talked about great worship and just what I talked about. I believe that more than anything, God wants our hearts and He wants our hearts to be surrendered and wholly His. And that um, I believe one of the things He looks for in a great church is great worship. And it's not a matter, <laughs> it's not a matter of the music we sing. It's not a matter of the building. Because God does not look at the outward appearance. He looks at what? The heart, the inward man. And so uh, we can have the greatest music and we can do all the stuff and we can have slick presentations and all of that. Mm. doesn't make it great worship because worship is always a matter of the heart. The fourth of these sermons, we talked about great leadership, that there has to be people who are setting the direction and the pace in any group of people, and it's, it's never more true than it is in the church. And last Sunday we talked about convictions 
that there have to be convictions, I believe, in a great church that are uh, non-negotiable, unwavering, and worth dying for. I've listed five of those. I hope you've been here for all five of those sermons, but I know in reality not all of y'all have. You know what I realize is that all of those things come down to individual decisions for us as a part of the corporate body, as a part of the church. You can't really have just a, a group that's good at these things. There have to be individuals that are great at these things. And so really for you and for me, this whole sermon series come down, comes down to some individual choices of how are these matters in my life? How is my love for one another? Is, is my vision of what God wants to do, is it, is it worldwide? Is my heart, is my worship great? Is my heart solely surrendered to Him? Am I being the leader that I need to be? Because I talked about it in that sermon that there are, there are different levels of leadership, layers of leadership in the church. And it comes down even to not just recognized leaders or positions in our church, but people that people look to. And even in our homes, in our communities, it's always a matter of leadership. How am I leading? How am I setting the pace and the direction for other people that if other people would say, what does it look like for a person to follow Jesus? Would they look to me? Whether I'm in a position of leadership in the church or not, there are people, for most of us, that look to us to set the pace and the direction. And then from last Sunday, the sermon on convictions. Are there convictions in my life that are so deep, related to morality and truth, that they are unwavering, non-negotiable? And are there convictions in your life and my life that are worth dying for? Are there some things you'd say, no, if it comes down to me and if it costs me my life, I will take my stand on this truth. We talked about how God's morality and truth are absolute. Hmm. The classic characterization of the church is found in Acts chapter 2. And I want to read that. It's a scripture and a section of scripture that most of you are very familiar with. And I want you to look and listen as I read these verses at the things that I have already said because invariably those things are contained in these verses. This is the scripture's classic characterization of the church. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Then those who gladly received His word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers, 
Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. If you kind of listen closely to those words, you kind of went, wait a second. My preacher may be on to something because I think the things he's talked about are the things that are in that scripture. In fact, there's only one exception. I want to deal with the one exception. Because I think all the things that I've talked about and the one thing I want to talk about today is all in that, those verses. You know, the one thing that I don't see was the great vision. I, I don't think they had a worldwide vision at this point. That was something that God was going to have to do in their lives. And he does it later in the book of Acts. They hadn't really, they hadn't grasped that. But let me tell you, they were doing a really good job of reaching people in Jerusalem at this point. But Jesus had said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, it was something that God had to work with them. But you know all the other characteristics, love? I don't know if you saw it in here. But look at just the little words or little glimpses we have in verse 42 it talks about fellowship that they were spending time together they were spending time together even breaking bread it says which has an allusion not only to a meal but also to that meal that jesus commanded them to do to remind them of his death the lord's supper but it says that they devoted themselves in verse 42 yes to the apostles doctrine but to fellowship and in the breaking of bread uh, talks about in verse 44 that I think a demonstration of the love. Now, all those who believe were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions in good and divided them among all as anyone had need because I talked about in my sermon on love that love, just like in a marriage or in any other respects, is about giving yourself for another person, meeting the needs of another person. And it, it kind of it says it again, uh, in verse 46 when it says, and they were breaking bread from house to house and they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And so you see this, this uh, community life among the early church that I believe was living out Jesus' commandment, love one another. I believe you see the, the worship of God. It talks about, in verse 42, it talks about they had devoted themselves to prayers. They were praying together. It says later on that in verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, they were coming to the place of worship. These people were raised Jewish when they thought of worshiping God. They didn't have a building like this. This is just days. I mean, God just like, whoop, 3,000 people got saved that first day. It's like, well, wait a second. We got to start a building program now. No, they were just, they were just scrambling just to try to, I don't know, keep everybody together. And where did they go to worship God? They went to the temple because that's where they'd been raised in all those generations for the Jewish people. They, they went to the temple to worship God. And it, and it expresses that um, in verse 47 when it says, praising God. And so 
worship, I believe, was demonstrated in the early church. You see the leadership because two times it talks about the apostles. In verse 42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles were teaching the people the things that Jesus had taught them. And so we see the leadership that the apostles, at least in the beginning, were the ones who were setting the direction and the pace, what it looked like to follow Jesus. And I, in fact, I believe, even from last week's sermon, when we talk about convictions, it's in that word doctrine in verse 42 when it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine is not something of like, you know, listen, I want to teach you a few little things that might be suggestions and things you might consider, or little things you might want to do to be a follower of Jesus. No, doctrine is doctrine. It's kind of a hard word. It's like, oh, my doctrine. Doesn't seem, seem to be a lot of wiggle room with doctrine. That's why Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Here are the things that are absolute in our morality and in truth, the things that are non-negotiable, unwavering, and are worth dying for. And ultimately, as we described last Sunday, that's what the church, the apostles, gave their life for, that only Jesus saves. And if you don't know Jesus, you can't get to heaven. And people didn't like that. And ultimately, that one truth is what got them killed. I understand this week, there have been more developments in our culture being relative. I think it was Hannah Joy who texted me Friday morning about 7 a.m., said, nope, I've already been on my news feed. I know what's coming down. The White, Ho- White House directive that all public schools would adhere and make accommodations for transgender students. And I talked about it last Sunday. Sorry about that on Mother's Day. I have a history of making Mother's Day not a very user-friendly Sunday. Sorry about that. That goes all the way back to my first church. I don't even want to tell you about that sermon. you think I would have learned a lesson by now, though. No. No. Oh, people. I told you, for our culture, morality and truth are relative. But in Christ... Morality and truth are absolute. Jesus said, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. Our standard of morality and truth is God. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. Oh, let me just make this cultural, political, theological statement this morning. Gender was created by the Creator. In Genesis, those early chapters, it says explicitly, and He made them male and female. To deviate 
from that is an affront to the Creator and to the created order. It is that simple. Am I surprised? Well, yeah, actually I am a little bit. I'm 54 years old. I was born in 1962. Some of you have it worse than me. You were born much earlier than I was. You're thinking, oh, brother, you don't even know what's happened in my lifetime. The bottom line, and I want to make it very clear in the midst of a relative message by our culture that gender is created by the Creator, male and female, and to deviate from that is an affront to the Creator and the created order of what God intended. Practically, I would say, this isn't my sermon, this is my political statement. So this is not the pastor of First Baptist Huntington, this is just Daryl Smith. We cannot sustain, and I said this last Sunday, quote me on it if you want me to, if you want to. We cannot sustain the accommodations for every deviant behavior. It, it's not practical. Even if we wanted to, when we continue down this road, it is not sustainable to continue to accommodate every deviant behavior. But anyhow, quote me on that one. And know that the early church had deep convictions that were unwavering, non-negotiable, and worth dying for. Hmm. Okay. But my sermon this Sunday, when you look at those verses, verses 41 through 47, and yes, you can pick out the love and the worship, um, the leadership, the convictions. What is it? What, if you look at those verses, there's something else there. There's something else in those verses that you go, wait, wait a second. This also characterized the early church. Verse 43. If you just went systematically through and you put everything in a pigeonhole, there would be some leftovers, and it's this one thought. It's in verse 43. It says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. The one thing, another thing that characterized the early church, and I would have to say if this is the classic, classic characterization of the church, would need to characterize the church today is the supernatural. I believe a great church has to be characterized by things that only God can do. You may not be with me yet. I can't, theologically, I'm, I'm a guy that's going to say, no, 
the miracles and the signs and wonders were not just reserved for the apostolic age. I believe it must characterize the church today. The early church experienced things that only God can do. They experienced the power of God. Think about this with me. All of the other things that I've mentioned, and I don't have time to go over those again, that if you took all of those things out, theoretically those all could be done in human power. But I believe the signs and the wonders and the supernatural are mentioned here to remind us that the church must be characterized by those things, the supernatural, that only God can do. If the church is only doing the things that they can do, even if that's love and that's leadership and that's worship and that's convictions, but there is not the element that there is something here that only God can do, then there's something missing. You could have the love, you could have the worldwide vision, you could have the worship, the leadership, the convictions, you could have all of that. But if you take out the God elements, then theoretically you could simply do that in your own human strength and only in, in human power, and it would only be the practice of religion, human religion. But we see in the early church that there were things that only God could do. Humans could not do. In fact, what we see in the early church is they did the things that Jesus had done. I don't have time to go through it. But the next verse starts a story in chapter 3, verse 1, in which Peter and John, in the name of Jesus, heal a lame man. Oh, you can, you can read through the account of the early church in Acts and you can see that not only was the lame healed, but the blind was healed. In fact, we read it this morning from the baptistry. Saul of Tarsus, when Ananias laid his hands on him, he received his sight. Demons were cast out in the name of Jesus. They raised the dead. Jesus had done that. Peter also did it. Three times, this is kind of interesting to me, they were miraculously or supernaturally delivered from prison. Three different stories in the book of Acts. And they did it in the name of Jesus. That's what Jesus had said. The same things that I've done, you will do in my name. Hmm. Several weeks ago, in my, my, our, when Sammy and I went on our trip to Africa, the last night in the last village, and he told the story, I've told the story of, at adult Bible study. Last night, a uh, new village, Sonyolo. Uh, David Shaw and I are driving down the road, leaving Juanino. I know you all can see this. We've just been to the soccer match, you know met up with Messi and all of that, you know, and driving down the road, a young man flags us down and says, why haven't you stopped in our village? And we said, we will go. And the ladies group in January went and told a story. We, we went and we asked if we could stay. And so we stayed and ate and bathed and slept on their floor and we told stories. And um, probably the highlight of the trip in many respects because they sat on every word to hear the story of Jesus. 
We told these miracle stories. Then we told the story of the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus. So I had opportunity to tell the story of Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion. But then the greatest miracle of all, that he was raised from the dead and transformed. We were going to end the night, uh, and Sammy did end the night, uh, with telling the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But after the Jesus resurrection story, there was a man who raised his hand. I don't know if they raised their hand in Africa now that I think about it. There was a man who got our attention. I don't think they're taught like that. man that said, I have a question. And this was his question. <laughs> I love this. He said, we have heard. May, in fact, it may have been the same man who minutes before had said, we had heard that Jesus died. Is that true? Oh. As I've described, that's like a softball, pitching a softball to the preacher. Oh, he did he die? Oh, let me just, mm, boom! You know, it's like, oh no, let me tell you that story. That's a good one. I want to tell you that one. And then he got raised from the dead. Anyhow, we're just going to tell it all. It may have been the same man that said, we have heard that the followers of Jesus can do the same things that Jesus did. <laughs> ah! I am so glad. Very good question. Uh, the night before, we had gone to a uh, soccer match. This was intense. Sonyolo played Kamandu in Sonyolo. Drama, controversy, major injuries... If there had been an ambulance, it would have come on the field a couple times. There was no ambulance. When they called for medical staff, there was the ref was from Sonyolo. Anyhow, a lot of controversy still disputed by FIFA and the other world organizations. No. Kamandu had come to Sonyolo to play soccer, football. And when the man, young man asked about can the followers of Jesus do the same things that Jesus did? And I said, yes. In Jesus' name, they can do the same things. And I said, there was a young man here yesterday who played soccer on that field back there by the name of Siddiqui. And I said, several years ago, we were in their village. And I told the, the Siddiqui story. Now, David Shaw's name is Siddiqui. And, you know, so the point of the story is anyone who's crazy or demon-possessed is named Siddiqui. And so when they saw David, they looked at him and said, ah, Siddiqui. Anyhow, that's off the point. Uh, and I said, there is a young man from Kamandu by the name of Siddiqui. And they said, yeah, of course, we know him. <laughs> it is a small country. <laughs> we know Siddiqui. And I said, uh, I guess the second time we'd ever been to Kamandu, I said, we were telling the story. I was telling the story that Sammy is about to tell the Ethiopian eunuch. And when I came to the point in the story where it said, and Philip took that scripture and taught him, preached unto him, Jesus. I, I told him this story. I was probably rather animated. I probably stood up at this point. And I said, there was a scream in the back of the village and a lot of commotion, as only Africans can be commoted, if there is such a verb. <laughs> probably not. And uh, I said, what I discovered, we discovered, is that Siddiqui, the young man that was here, he had a demon. And uh, we went to his hut. And I said, 
there, are peop- there were people that were there. I said, you know, Abu Sanyo from <laughs> Swilo was with us. Muhammad Keita was there. I said, there were people there. Uh, Siddiqui's father and mother, they were there. They can, you know these people. You can ask them about this story. And I said, and that night, or that afternoon actually, we prayed in the name of Isa that Siddiqui would be delivered of that demon. And he was. I said, you can talk to the people. I said, it's happened among you. I don't have to tell you stories of things that happen in America or things that happen in the Bible. These are things that Jesus does now and here. He has the power. And so I told the, the Siddiqui story of how God delivered him in the name of Jesus from his demons. All through the book of Acts, the followers of Jesus do the very things that Jesus did in Jesus' name. There was an element to the church of the supernatural that God did what only God could do. There was a demonstration of God's power in wonders and signs, as it says. But you know, there's something else in those verses. In fact, to me, is the greatest miracle of all. It's in the first verse and the last verse. In the first verse, in verse 41, it says, And those who believed, that there were about 3,000 people that believed, and that day they were baptized and they were added to the followers of Jesus. 3,000 people that day. Now, percentage-wise, that's actually a small percentage of the people that would have heard the message that would have been in Jerusalem that day. But 3,000... I'm thinking as a pastor logistically, how do you baptize 3,000 people in one day? How does that even happen? But you know, to me... And and then what you see in the last verse, in verse 47, it says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Not only 3,000 the first day, but every day after that, God just kept adding people that were being saved and adding them to the church. The thing that strikes me about the phrase is it said, And the Lord added those who were being saved. It was God's doing. I would contend today that the greatest miracle other than a... You know, you can have a demon possession, you can have a physical healing, but the greatest miracle of all is the miracle of salvation. And that was the greatest demonstration of God's power, the signs and wonders in the early church, is that there were people every day being saved as the gospel was preached. God would open in their hearts, convince them of the truth, and draw them to Himself. It says that the Lord added. It was only something God could do. And I'm struck also by the phrase that it says, when they were saved, that the Lord added them to the church. Hmm. You see, the, the life of a disciple is ingrained in the church. It's not just that God saved them, but God added to the church those who were being saved. <laughs> I love Brenda's story. I just smiled when she told her story in my office the other day. And, uh, of course, we videoed it and you saw it. And I don't know why I'm so surprised sometimes. She just said she got up that morning and 
she decided she wasn't going to the church that she'd been going to. And she told her ride, just go to Huntington. And she said, we passed several churches. And she'd say, hmm, no, no. Came to First Baptist Church. That's it. Right there. I don't know if y'all were here that Sunday. It's been several weeks ago. You just talk about the wonder of what God does in opening up someone's heart. Why? But as she described in her testimony, my head was full. All these things going on in my head, but my heart was empty. But there was something about this place and what God did in my heart. And God had to do it. That he filled her heart and emptied her head. (laughs) Of all those worries and things that she was stressed about. And she walked the aisle that morning and surrendered her life to Christ. I can't think of any greater miracle than the miracle of salvation. And it's, it's there in that classic characterization of the church in, Gen- in Acts 2 that not only were 3,000 saved the first day, but the days after that, God was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. Hmm. Oh, people, do you understand? If there is not a God element, if there is not something that only God can do that happens in our midst, the rest of it is just the practice of human religion. And I believe one of the things, when God looks down and looks for a great church, it's the church that sees God doing what only God can do. Hmm. Kind of put me in a quandary there until I realized the trigger... For the supernatural activity of God, do you know what this is in the Scripture? Is always faith. And so I would say, in conclusion to this sermon series, the sermon this morning, that the last thing that ought to characterize a great church is faith. To believe that God can and will do anything and expect Him to do it. Do you realize many times we we get so bogged down in our earthly existence and the practice of religion, we don't expect God to do anything. In fact, I don't know, somebody said this. I think somebody said it in deacon's meeting or in our Sunday school class. I don't know. It's the scripture from from Matthew 13, 58. I don't know why I thought it was Milton Wade said it, but anyhow, maybe in our Sunday school class. Matthew 13, 58, Jesus comes to Nazareth and they do not believe. He said a prophet is not without honor except in his, own, in his home city or country. And the scripture says in Matthew 13, 58, he was not able to do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, I, I look at that and I go, well, if unbelief restricts the mighty works of God, then the one thing that must release the mighty works of God is faith. Belief that God can and He will. And many times I believe we get bogged down in our daily lives into a pessimism that leads to a depression 
Because we look at the circumstances of our life and we just decide, I've never seen God change a situation like that. And we just say, well, God's not going to change that. In fact, you, me, we probably all got situations in our life right now, if we're just real honest. Earthly circumstances that we need heaven to flood into. But we need to start by believing that God can do anything to change that circumstance and that situation. I'm not so sure that sometimes we don't lose the battle at this very point. We don't believe God will or can. A great church is characterized, lastly, by faith. A belief that God can and will do what only He can do. And I believe it is our responsibility to have the kind of faith that expects God to do the things that only He can do, that He demonstrates His power. And I believe when we expect it and we position our hearts to believe it, I have to conclude He will. Because <laughs> I know that if I settle on a pessimism and a negativity and an unbelief, God won't. All I knew to know to do is to say, well, I believe God will. Now, does God do everything we want Him to do? Absolutely not. But apparently there are some things that He wants to do, but He waits for us to believe Him for that thing that only He can do. Oh, and doesn't the world need to look at the church and say, you know what, I really can't explain that in a human sense. And they ought to come to the conclusion to say, it must be God. First Baptist Church. God looks for us to have that kind of faith. In our personal lives. In our corporate life. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, today we acknowledge you as the great and mighty God. And Father, we acknowledge that our faith has been too small. That we have not believed that you could do what only you can do. And so Father, I pray that you would chide us as Jesus did in the Gospels for our unbelief. Convict us of it, Father. Help us to believe that you can and you will do the impossible and give us expectant hearts. And Father, even as we've learned and experienced in God, help us to watch, to see what you are doing in people's lives and in our world. So Father, we commit this time to you. We pray that you would use it for your glory. And we pray that you would do the supernatural this morning. And we pray it in that powerful name, the name of Jesus.